So I guess I'll kick off as I normally do and say thank all of you for joining us today at the Deleuze and Guattari Quarantine Collective's ongoing reading of Anti-Oedipus. We're on our second time through nearing the end of this at some point, but we are going to be taking our time as we make our way through 3.10, 3.11, and then all of chapter 4. There's a whole bunch of stuff coming and a whole bunch of things stuff. I, it's how I pronounce it, Guattari. Uh, Guattari is another one. <laughs> but it's Guattari, I believe. Varun? You're the Guat. What? You're, a, the, you're the Guat guy. Uh, how do you pronounce it's, it? Guattari. 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 Deleuze and Guattari. Yeah, I'm not going to do that. So it's Guattari for me because I anglicize and ruin everyone's names, especially if they're French. Um. Uh, but we'll be making our way slowly through 310, uh, and as we do, um, as we did last time, uh, we will be doing a big, gigantic review. So if you have major questions as we go through all of this, please don't hesitate to drop comments in the chat. Uh, let us know, raise your hand. Uh, we're happy to have discourse and discussions over all of this, especially some of these things as they start getting more and more complex. Uh, I'm also streaming the PDF uh, if you need to read along. Uh, any things before we get started over what we'd been reading through up till this point, or should I just uh, make my way uh, on in? Which chapter are we on again? Or like subsection? 310, bottom of 249 on my copy. Yeah, no, I mean, um, we could just give a summary of what, what we've been talking about so far. Well, that's a lot. Um so, I don't mind doing that. Yeah, no, let's 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 give it a top line and see if we can push through cuz we're going to end up doing one or two reviews of this entire thing. So I'm um at, at this point we're having a chat about the shift in how production is decided, how desires manipulated, how inscription works within uh within this entire setup. So as we talk about capitalist inscription at, and representation as a thing, how it works inside of uh uh, production overall, there's a lot of stuff that they start getting into. Most recently, we spent, I think, a half hour to an hour having a discussion um, about the shift from desires being a thing that uh, are immediately sort of gratified over the course of the sort of three socius. We have the prehistoric, the primitive, where uh, our desires are sort of up against the real. It's eminent to our experiences. We have our affiliative and our alliant. We, the people we choose to be around or are tied to or the family line, um, the people we actually produce ourselves. Uh, those lines are ultimately the matrix that our desires sort of are acted upon or play within. Uh, as we move to the despotic, uh, uh, we, we shift to our affiliative and our alliant lines essentially going both through the man in charge or woman in charge, uh, person in charge, godhead of the society. Uh, they're the ones who their desires and their wants are actually the most important thing to me. They're also the thing all alliances go back to and all affiliative lines go back to, the mother of all, father of all, as well as the brother and sister of all. Um, and as such, that shift causes a great deal of change in terms of how our desires are produced, how we are subjectivized, how the subject exists. Capital comes along and adds this other little bit, and it's not just money. Uh, capital adds capital. And this is where we spent, I think, the vast majority of our time in the last 
few discussions is talking about the shift from money as essentially commodity to money as capital. And that change that Marx goes over and the discussion they have, the shift of how capital as a secondary abstraction of production, how it plays within societies, changes societies. Um, and now our affiliative and our alliant is all marked within capital, which is this non-qualitative, purely quantitative element that's deeply abstracted in the place of an economy, but also alongside a power structure. So their critiques of capital uh, follow a lot of the stuff that we've you know, read within Marx. And I believe, think Deleuze does a lot of what he does with Marx as what he do, did with Kant or what he did with, uh, you know, other, other thinkers and sort of takes them to another sort of, you know, level. Uh, but that's more or less how we got to where we are as a tiny sort of version of it. Um, and it's an incredibly complex section. So it's hard for me to sort of minimize into a tiny bit. Uh, Varun, you want to take a crack at it and say where I was wrong yeah. with anything? No, I mean, I'll just, I mean, yours was a lot bigger. I'll just go into a small element of where we are right now. Um, specifically, I mean, last what they're doing with the signifier, what we covered last time was this, you know, the question of why, why did they need the work of uh, Hemschlove? Um, why did they come to Sw the Swiss linguist for them to explain this phenomena? So, um, you know, from what we've covered earlier, what we can see is that both Deleuze and Guattari are actually a big fan of um, structuralist linguistics, specifically the notion of a lung, right? The fact that you have this differential relation that constitutes the terms. And these, and these terms don't exist independently of the differential relations. They have no positive content independent of differential relations. And the key factor is that these differential relations, since they, since they constitute an expressionist concept, basically refer to a non-representationalist concept. But there's a certain error in understanding structuralist linguistics, because for one thing, structuralist linguistics can never give an account of the genesis of things. Um, so the very simple explanation is this. If you, you know, if you take structural linguistics seriously and I, somebody asks you the question, well, how does language come about? The only way you could answer that question is by presupposing that language comes, all comes about in one false swoop, right? It all comes together in one instantaneous moment. Because if you have structure, that means that, you know, for one word to exist, you need to have multiple words. So you know, now you're getting into this challenge of how do we explain the genesis of language as being one false swoop? So you can't, it's not easy to do that. Um, Deleuze and Guattari's solution is, well, we need to explain the genesis of a differential structure. Now, they find a solution to this problem in the work of Louis Hemschlove, specifically the way he understands content and expression. And where things are going to get interesting, though, is they're going to use this to understand the genetic account of the axioms of capitalism. Yes. Um, and the, the axioms of capitalism, there's a wonderful uh, bit by uh, Holland on uh, the axiomatics of capital, or capitalist axiomatics, I think is the title of it. Uh, I'll link to it. Um, that really goes into explaining, uh, you know, what an axiomatic is, uh, in, especially in terms of how Luz uh, and Guadri are using it here and how they'll continue to, uh, that, that works within capital that's very different than 
sort of standard setup in terms of coding and decoding, which is what came before, that things were hard-coded, that they may become decoded or recoded, but these these elements, uh, the, the pathways, the desires, the flows are coded as they are. The shift within capital is we're moving to an axiomatic system, which is a completely different, it's a completely different way of having uh, sort of everything operate, to say the least. Um, all right, uh, I'm at the bottom of 248 and we will give a continuing read. Hence, capital differentiates itself from any other socius or full body, inasmuch as capital itself figures as a directly economic instance, and falls back on production without interposing extra economic factors that would be inscribed in the form of a code. With the advent of capitalism, the full body becomes truly naked, as does the worker himself who is attached to this full body. In this sense, the anti-production apparatus ceases to be transcendent and pervades all production and becomes coextensive with it. Thirdly, as a result of these developed conditions involving the destruction of all codes within a becoming concrete, the absence of limits takes on a new meaning. This absence no longer simply designates the unlimited abstract quantity, but the effective absence of any limit or end or the differential relation where the abstract becomes something concrete. Concerning capitalism, we maintain that it both does and does not have an exterior limit. It has an exterior limit that is schizophrenia, that is, the absolute decoding of flows, but it functions only by pushing back and exorcising this limit. And it also has, yet does not have, interior limits. It has interior limits under the specific conditions of capitalist production and circulation, that is, in capital itself, but it functions only by reproducing and widening these limits on an always vaster scale. The strength of capitalism indeed resides in the fact that its axiomatic is never saturated, that it is always capable of adding a new axiom to the previous ones. Capitalism defines a field of eminence and never ceases to fully occupy this field, but this deterritorialized field finds itself determined by an axiomatic in contrast to the territorial field determined by primitive codes. Differential relations of such a nature as to be filled by surplus value, an absence of exterior limits that is filled by the widening of internal limits, and the effusion of anti-production within production so as to be filled by the absorption of surplus value. These constitute the three aspects of capitalism's imminent axiomatic, and monetarization everywhere comes to fill the abyss of capitalist imminence, introducing there, as Schmidt says, a deformation, a convulsion, an explosion, in a word, a movement of extreme violence. Um, I have a question. Uh, can you hear me? I can hear you. Oh, wonderful, because I'm currently walking. Um, Enjoy your donor so kebab. The, I'm very jealous. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Thanks. <laughs> One thing Germans can do. Um, they spoke about uh, this capitalistic field of imminence and this disruptive and almost, yeah, not almost, this destructive nature. nature. Does this mean, then, that capitalism is just constantly 
instantiating quasi-transcendentals, so to speak, uh, in, in uh, opposition to imminence, but is not really uh, establishing a real transcendent, uh, no form of identity or something like a, a concept or a notion. Um, are you using transcendental in the Kantian sense or the general theological sense? In a general theological sense. Yeah. Um, so, I think uh, <laughs> that's the big problem with the critique of pure reason, right? Because the words are so confusing, or the way he attributes the word transcendental. So, I think when Deleuze uses the word imminent, he's actually referring to the Kantian notion of the transcendental, at least in this paragraph, because he's talking about something that's the very condition of something. Um, okay, that's that. And so what the way I think uh, to answer your question about the transcendental is that basically what's happening is that, you know, it's setting it said it, it said it's creating limits. And whatever would be outside that limit, it would be considered transcendental at that specific point of time. But when that limit is displaced, then a new transcendental comes in. So basically what's happening is it's always constructing new limits and in that sense it's always constructing new transcendentals. Yeah, the 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 phrasing around axiomatic um a, a great explanation I saw once of what an axiomatic is is think of it as the rules in a in a in a sports game. Uh you can't use your hands in soccer. Uh these these are rules that we create in order to make the game function and to allow it to exist. Uh this is different than say uh, saying that gravity is a rule of soccer and that's an axiomatic. That's not how that works as a thing. These are these are rules that are sort of accepted and, and part baseline of the game in order for it to play. With that, the way that we handle axiomatics and that imminent axiomatic of things, uh, I think this is... I, I, would see, I, would, I would say yes to what Triad's saying. That we're talking about... Um, you know, little elements of constantly semi-quasi-transcendental, which I really like that sort of phrasing of it, because they can die at any time and they only exist until capital doesn't need the axiom anymore or needs to layer on another one that deforms it on top. Um, that feels more right, Varun? No? Uh, yeah, I mean, because um, it, it is... Uh, what's, what, what there's... So the whole notion with the way they understand the limit is uh, in contradiction to Marx, right? Because for Marx, what, the thing is that, you know, we, we, the way, you know, workers are being treated, since workers are kind of the motor of capitalism, eventually these contradictions where the workers, you know, the motor of capitalism is suffering the most, eventually that's, that's an example of contradiction. Eventually these contradictions will lead to an overturning. Um, for Deleuze and Guattari, the contradiction just leads to the creation of a new limit. And uh, essentially what you do, what happens is you just get a new limit and a new limit and a new limit, each contradiction. So rather than having an overturning, you're just you're displacing the limit in terms of what Deleuze and Guattari are saying. So, you know, if you want to use the sort of theological sense of the word transcendent or transcendental, it'll, it would still apply. So what you would say is that when a limit is constituted, the constitution of a limit also constitutes a transcendent, which is, I don't know what you want to call it, 
in terms of like modality, you could say it's like a future possible state. But the thing about capitalism is it keeps going on to infinity with the limit. So, yeah. Well, and and they, they're pretty clear when they say, and they have their three, uh, three aspects of capitalism. I mean, I, I, I should cl clarify that okay. there are two limits. There's not, you know, there, there are two limits that they're talking about. There's an interior limit and there's an exterior limit. The thing about capitalism is it doesn't have an exterior limit. That's why, and I think I gave this example last time too, right? The way, to, if, you, if you don't have an exterior limit, the way to think about it is folding a piece of paper. A piece of paper is this infinite space, which depending on the number of times you fold it, you create new limits every time you fold it. So think about capitalism as this infinite, this infinitely long piece of paper where you can create as many limits as you want just by folding it. And you could keep displacing these limits by unfolding it. That's kind of what they mean when they talk about an interior limit. They're talking about a fold. Well, and the exterior limits, the way they're talking about it is it's it, when they say he's very, and he's clear, it's, it's, schizophrenia is the exterior limit, but it's not a limit in the way that we talk about limits because that's just sort of this natural end point because at total schizophrenia and total disconnection. With uh, things, natural, natural. Natural is the wrong word. I know, I know. I'm speaking more, Ed, um, uh, how to put it. There's nothing that can exist beyond it. Like, You're about to go plastic pills there for a sec. No, no. It, there's nothing that can go beyond the schizophrenia. It's every, when everything is hyper-disconnected and nothing is connected, that's kind of the end of coding. Like, that's just the way it is. So there's, um, I don't know how I'm phrasing that, but he does say, and maybe you can explain it better or someone can, uh, what the schizophrenic limit to capital actually means. I don't think we've seen it yet. That's the thing. Well, I don't think we've seen it. No, we haven't. But there is the absolute decoding of flows. And at that point, there is, uh, there is sort of a... Well, didn't they already speak about this? Uh, like a chapter before that, uh, maybe or, or two weeks ago when we read this, uh, that the body without organs or the... Oh, no, it was not the body without organs. It was the, the schizophrenic. That is the total limit of capitalism. Uh, the total loss of every form of, of uh, structure uh, in this sense or every form of analogous reasoning by creating new forms of connections, uh, the total dissolvement into uh, free association, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, so so the way that they're talking about it is there is, um, there is this limit that exists to capital where things just get completely decoded and sort of fall apart, where there is no connective tissue. However, capital's kind of incredible in that it has this ability to push back and exercise this limit constantly. It's, it's able to constantly continue to push what a decoded nothingness or disconnectedness means by finding new axioms to justify X, Y, or Z and continue to push. We haven't seen this limit, like, and maybe we haven't experienced it, but this is there within capital. And he's they're very clear about like their wording on this. They use it pretty regularly. The, internally, the interior limits under specific conditions of capitalist production uh, in capital itself, but it functions only by reproducing and widening these limits on an always vaster scale. So again, the, what it does is it basically utilizes this uh, exterior limit, that absence of it, and it's constantly filled by the widening of this internal limit um, uh, as they're describing it. 
And that is, I mean, that's the first of the imminent axiomatics that sort of comes with being within capital. Right. So this, this state we, we haven't seen yet would then just be the total dissolvement or collapse of this capitalistic regime. Maybe not the, the death of everything of society, for example, but of this uh, form of, of uh, production because it stops to having, uh, stops having a trajectory. It cannot go any further. So by that, it just implodes or just uh, erupts into uh, like an, uh, an entrop uh, entropy nova and dissolves into uh, infinitely small bits. And it's so to, to what Varun was talking about and you guys were talking about, the, this field of eminence that capitalism defines that is, uh, I don't know, it's difficult to sort of talk through. Um, the, the nature of this field is put there by capital, but capital never actually takes up this field itself. Like it's defined and put there uh, with those sort of three axiomatics in this place of the axiomatics, but capital's not within that, um, fully at least. I no, mean, uh, I, I guess uh, I guess you're not off because uh, to me it, it almost sounds like uh, that that capital is a sort of uh, parasite to this field of imminence that is uh, <laughs> even though this this uh, whole metaphor in, in spatial terms is totally problematic, but it sits now recording on it um, and and is, is is sucking off this this uh, surplus values or creating it by uh, constantly using this, this, this disruptive force of the field of imminence, this, this uh, chaotic nature or something that, that Michel Serre would call the noise. Uh, it, it's somehow controlling the noise in, in, on this, uh, in the stands over the volcano. Um, and is, is by that, through this very risky uh, objective, very successful, but um, constantly uh, on the, on the edge of uh, collapsing or falling into the pit. And one of the big parts of this that's important is um, the shift of how anti-production uh, changes and anti-production um, apparatuses, which you know, under previous SOCIA were sort of uh, contingent perhaps, uh, but also sort of transcendent across all of it but instead now anti-production is part and parcel with all production and is coextensive with it. This, this shift of how anti-production functions also within capital is a big change as well. I'll tell you this, the reason why it's so hard to talk about imminence is because it's always presupposed. It's a tough one. Um, Rocketess acts uh, is are axioms like legislation, right? No, uh, laws are a little different. Axioms are, um, uh, when we talk about the eminence here, we're not talking about a thing that can exist after I've thought about stuff. Like the whole point is that eminence is sort of up against the subject is right there. So when we talk about these, they're not laws created by society that I have to then contemplate. They're things we sort of take for granted and assume about the society we live in uh, within capital one of the really big ones is if you work hard you can get ahead that's the thing not that saying pervades a ton but it's a feeling also that we have is a, i need to be working harder i need to be doing more I, I am responsible for my own success that mentality is an axiomatic uh inside of this these 
these rules of the game are what make things set up there um if you're dealing with someone who's on the right side of or also on the left i guess in america um, the the things they seem to take for granted and not really reconsider are axiomatic they're the thing at the base level that sort of play within this imminent spot that are rules about society we don't really know that we know i think would be a way to describe it a law would be after the fact that's a whole other thing laws may be part of or resulted from axiomatics but they're not axiomatics it's it's not subcomandante snow uh, um it is like is it like how you can say little green men but not green little men um uh, yes it, it's emotionally that it's that just feels right it just feels right it feels weird to do the other thing um it's 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 a lot like that but more severe i would say but it's not a not far off emotionally from that i think uh, reaction wise and it's these i i don't find it as difficult to talk about the imminent because i think when we talk about just uh, you know, stepping beyond the analytical or in, analytically, it's difficult to talk about the eminent. But when we talk about the three steps and they have here uh, lined out, they say very clearly, like these are the three aspects of capitalism's eminent axiomatic, the, the parts of it. The first is that the differential relations of such a nature as to be filled by surplus value. To go back to the previous chapter, it's dx over dy that the the relations of that must be filled by surplus value we have to everything we do everything we do that has that conjugates needs to conjugate in a way that results in surplus value um and this is again imminent so you go through your day you don't if you do something that doesn't have surplus value you feel like you wasted your day um then the next is an ex an absence of exterior limits that it is filled by the widening of internal limits um there doesn't feel like there's an end to things. It doesn't feel like there's a way we can stop. Uh, if I want to talk about the American path for all of it, uh, the world is ours, the, the universe is ours. There's no limit to what mankind can do, this kind of thinking and this kind of talking, but it is filled by these widening internal limits. We don't see those out exterior ones, but it's widening by these internal limits, these these things we place within ourselves, within society, these, these widening of those internal limits. And the third is the effusion of anti-production within production, so as to be filled by the absorption of surplus value. Anti-production is its own fucking thing. We're going to be having to get into it at some point, and that's its own. I'm not super clear on I'll just say up front, anti-production is one of the more difficult things because we're talking about basically the production of lack, as a as a thing like a material quantity and it's really difficult for me to wrap my head around that after spending too much time with lacan and zizek so maybe maybe someone has a better way to sort of explain that one right now feel free i mean so for Deleuze and Guattari, the production of lack is i mean it's a little bit more complicated than just anti-production because what they're going to say is that and lack is produced anytime desire has an object. That's what they say, I think, in chapter one. Anytime desire is given an object, lack is produced. And, uh, I mean, this is very much just a logical deduction. Cause think about it. When you give desire an end goal, a teleology, whenever you say that 
think about, you know, something like uh, universal human needs. Uh, for example, thirst. All we're saying when, when we say the word thirst is that we want water. And um, in that phrasing, what this would imply is that if we don't have water, we have lack. So whenever you give desire the phrasing that it has an object, in that sense, whenever it's given a directionality, it already has lack implied. And so what anti-production basically is, is the production of something like uh, the production of desire having an end goal. That's one way to put it. All right. I, I, I like that. Um, and I would almost add into that, I think, um, it, when we talk about anti-production and, and the use of it, we've talked through the previous uh, socii and how they sort of have these moments of anti-production where like, we, we call it like the release valve, where they have a big feast about all of these things. Um, capitalists, I'll just read from uh, some Holland. Capitalist anti-production culminates not in the transcendent glory of a palace at Versailles, but the morbid greed of what Deleuze and Guattari refer to as the political-military-industrial complex, among other things. Or what the production, and especially the realization, surplus value require, given the tendency of capitalism to overproduce on a continually larger scale, is a vast system of anti-production installed at the heart of production itself to keep its wheels turning, by absorbing overproduction within production itself. This, uh, it, to say, such was the intended effect, for example, of Keynesian economic policy in the New Deal, though it was really achieved only by the Second World War and the nuclear arms race, and such is the ongoing function. The, the line here, uh, the effusion of anti-production within production so as to be filled by the absorption of surplus value is kind of... Prior to this, if we had a lot of surplus value, shit needed to go somewhere. You need economic sinks. Uh, World of Warcraft. You need to have places where people can expel all the gold and all the stuff that they've earned. Uh, this is normal video game stuff. This is not unusual. Every video game has sinks. Um, but within an economy, uh, let's say a despotic one, the sinks kind of become these large-scale feasts, uh, you know, money thrown back out. They're, they're a, a singular contingent event that may happen. What's shifted within capital is the change of anti-production being infused, effused, uh, put, put in at the heart of production itself. So that way the creation of surplus value is also its own sort of anti-productive destruction in its own weird way. That's why they you know, align a lot of this with the political, military, industrial complex. Um, we can talk about this as... Uh, uh, what's, what's the size of our industrial, military, industrial complex, but we can't get health care... Like where money has to go is, is part of the setup. We make more than we've ever needed in our entire lives, but all of it needs to go to these things. And it's accepted. It's normal. So it's the imminent axiomatic, even though we have more surplus than ever. Uh, this is absolutely from the accursed share, uh, ultimately. Like there's no way this isn't like deeply inspired by Bataille. They, they cite him throughout uh, the previous two socii. Um, yeah, I mean, the interesting thing for Deleuze's like, basic anthropological reading is that you can't have a 
I mean, what what holds social organization together is that if you cancel out the debt, the social organization sort of falls apart. A, a wonderful book on this is actually David Graeber, Debt uh, History. It has, some, it has some problems, but so that book is weird, right? Because he's actually critiquing Deleuze and Guattari in that book, except what I find strange, despite critiquing him, I think he, first of all, he misreads Deleuze and Guattari's reading of Nietzsche. He does. And then... And um, I think despite critiquing Deleuze and Guattari, he is, he's trying to defend a similar thesis to them. I think I he think. bolsters them. I mean, he does absolutely critique some aspects, but the underlying idea that debt is the thing that circulates rather than an exchangist you know, uh, proposition like Levi Strauss, um, that it is this debt that makes us... I, there's Sure, you can go different directions in it, but he's absolutely in line with everything they're saying in my in my reading at least yeah I would, I would agree with that except i think that book has some problems and what is in some of the universal claims it sometimes tries to make but um other than that i would agree with most of it because you know if you can't i mean you cancel the debt that you kind of destroy i mean the economy in a way which is a point that he makes that's very i think it's a very sound point and Deleuze and Guattari have a very good argument for that, too. Yep. Fully agree. Um, and so these, these three bits, this imminent, these three elements of this imminent axiomatic, the way that now is just the way the rules are. These are the rules, not the laws. The rules are for the subject, for the person, for you, me. These are the three aspects. And monetarization everywhere comes to fill the abyss of capitalist eminence, introducing there this deformation, convulsion, explosion, in a word, a movement of extreme violence. It's built in. It's the violence is inherent in the system, as line from Monty Python. Um, I do want to get to the fourth characteristic here, so I'm going to go ahead and read the next paragraph, and we'll move uh, uh, to discussing that because this is this gets a whole thing. There results, finally, a fourth characteristic that places the axiomatic in opposition to codes. The axiomatic does not need to write in bare flesh to mark bodies and organs, nor does it need to fashion a memory or man. In contrast to codes, the axiomatic finds in its different memory, in its different aspects, its own organs of execution, perception, and memorization. Memory has become a bad thing. Above all, there is no longer any need of belief, and the capitalist is merely striking a pose when he bemoans the fact that nowadays no one believes anything anymore. Language no longer signifies something that must be believed. It indicates rather what is going to be done, something the shrewd or the competent are able to decode, to half-understand. Moreover, despite the abundance of identity cards, files, and other means of control, Capitalism does not even need to write in books to make up for the vanished body markings. Those are only relics, archaisms with a current function. The person has become private in reality insofar as he derives from abstract quantities and becomes concrete in the becoming concrete of these same quantities. It is these quantities that are marked, no longer the persons themselves, or capital, or your labor capacity. The rest is not important. We'll always find a place for you within the expanded limits of the system, even if an axiom has to be created just for you. 
There is no longer any need of collective investment of organs, as they are sufficiently filled with the floating images constantly produced by capitalism. To pursue a remark of Henri Lefebvre, sorry, I'm getting weird notifications. Uh, these images do not initiate a making public of the private so much as privatization of the public. The whole world unfolds right at home without one's having to leave the TV screen. This gives private persons a very special role in the system, a role of application and no longer of implication in a code. The hour of Oedipus draws nigh. And if I, uh, real quick to ask, how do you pronounce his name? So I'm not an asshole. Is, is he the guy who wrote the critique of everyday life? Yes. Yeah. I, I always just mumbled something when it came time to pronounce this thing. Yeah. Lefebvre. Lefebvre? Lefebvre's. It, it feels like there's more than just Lefebvre there. Someone here probably speaks French. Lefebvre. Okay, well, yeah, Rakuchas says Lefebvre, probably. Who knows? Yeah, but who knows? Uh, it's a complicated name. Okay, so this fourth, this fourth characteristic uh, that places axiomatics to codes, the axiomatic does not need to write in bare flesh. This is, an, again, a major shift in how inscription and recording works inside of Capital. Um, there's some pretty... It's a great paragraph that uh, if Deleuze could see social media now is all I can think during parts of this. Um, there's a lot happening here. Um, at this point now, where we are within capital, uh, memory, memorization, uh, these, these things, memory is a bad thing. There is no longer a need of belief. There's no need to know or believe in what is written. This is all gone. Instead, language now signifies something to be done. Uh, this, this shift... Uh, to go to what Varun uh, was talking about with the move towards uh, bringing in Yelmslev uh, is very indicative of this as well. Uh, the content versus expression, the change of how language operates, no longer something to be believed. It indicates rather what is going to be done in the line, something that the shrewd or the competent are able to decode and half understand. Uh, such a great set of lines. Anyone want to uh, jump in? and uh, give uh, some thoughts on it. So how do Deleuze and Guattari stand to concepts like identity, not in the sense of uh, the opposition to difference, but personal identity or cultural identity? Because here it, it reads to me uh, as if capitalism um, is constantly producing this I guess at one point it uh, was called something like images that are already um, pre-produced or, or, or something like that, um, that are just effigies for these personal identities that can be constantly shifted or maybe just appropriated, then tossed off again um, and, and something like that. Uh, do you guys know something about that? So, I mean, go ahead, Vern. I will say, though, Deleuze does not deny the existence of identity, even when it comes to the concept of difference. It's just that identity is not what's primary, right? 
identity is always secondary in relation to difference. Identity is always difference when represented. That's the, one thing to And difference is a positive, not a negative. Yeah, but that's kind of, I mean, we, we anyways presuppose that when we say difference is productive. Right. So. Um, and the, the key thing, at least over here, is that, you know, if we want to ask how identity functions like a code, a good example, I mean, that Holland gives is, um, is a wedding ring, right? When it comes to the relationship between codes and flows, it's flows that actually do the moving, but it's the codes that actually do the guiding. You can think about it like this, right? Flows are in the process of production, while codes that are recorded on a body without organs are not are not basically things that are being produced because you know we they do say that the body though the body without organs is produced it doesn't do any producing right so codes are instead what which guide the flows and flows are what produce so you know the example I think Holland gives to think about this is think about sexual relations and how sexual relations engage with a wedding ring so. I mean, Brooks, you're you're a married man, right? Um, when uh, the fact that you wear a ring dictates your capacity to start having all, you know, to engage in all these other flows of sexual relationships. That's basically how a code works. Good example. I don't wear a wedding. But yes, <laughs> it's uh, codes... And the, the shift here, I think it's worth going back a little bit in time because they talk about marked on bodies. Um, the, uh, the underlying thing that they're pointing at here within the, the primitive man is that when, and the, the tribes they reference very particularly, and they go through a lot of uh, examples, but it's a thing you can see sort of through a lot of Aboriginal tribes that they literally scarify or carve into or tattoo things to someone's body who's coming of age, man or woman. And that decision or that moment carves in, marks them as a hunter, as a leader, as a this or that. And it, it gives them their debt to the tribe. There's a, there's a massive exchange that happens between the people doing the carving and having your body carved and watching it happen. It's this incredible thing. And as doing so, you are the marks, you're codified. You become code, I, I guess, probably a terrible way to phrase it. But the shift that's happening within capital is that we don't actually give a shit anymore. Like persons, we don't give a shit about like what you are. You're not Steve the school builder or the, the blacksmith. We don't even have that fucking anymore. That's not a thing. Um, we romanticize it. We don't have any of that shit now. Uh, instead, the only thing that's marked is the capital, is the labor capacity, is what we can produce, and that can change literally in a heartbeat. It's like, oh, it's a coal mining town shut down. Um, my family was West Virginia coal miners for 50 years, as multiple generations. That's an entire massive group of people who their entire livelihood shifted. Now their capital or labor capacity has shifted on. There's a whole change, and that, that change in that setup is a big shift when it comes to how we code people or how people have their debt to society formed. It's not that they're marked. It's the money is, the capital is. And you, oh, we'll always find a place for you. It's not so much that we need a place for a hunter, but 
Brooks, the middle-class white guy, is going to be doing his thing. We'll, we'll have a spot for you, whatever you want to call yourself. And also you over there, we'll find ways to expand. Oh, we don't like this race. Well, now we do. Yeah, we'll allow Irish into bars. We'll always expandingly find places for everyone to come in. But we don't really need you as labor person. We need you as labor capacity. And that's marked on the, the money that passes through you. As such, like that change, that uh, all I can think of is uh, mixed with the rest of this is uh, Byung-Chul Han's Into the Swarm, where he talks about uh, you know internet and digital culture. Wonderful book. I highly recommend it. Um, but it's this idea that we can't collectively invest in things because we don't do it together. Uh, his argument is that it's happening because of digital. I'm alone. I don't. I don't see any of you. I'm talking to a screen right now and imagining that all of you are there. You're listening to me talk, but you're not like I'm a disembodied nothing. Like you are completely alienated from this entire experience. Uh, as such, we don't have the ability to collectively do a fucking thing. Like we're not going to go storm the Reichstag tomorrow. We're not going to do anything. It's the why the January 6th riots as an example that happened and they took over the Capitol. My favorite video, it's like the angriest people who've ever lived and they stayed inside of the cordon ropes and they didn't burn the Capitol down. Like they can't do it because the quantities that are, are marked, not the persons themselves. The, the line here, there is no longer any need of a collective investment of organs as they are sufficiently filled with the floating images constantly produced by capitalism. This, this is a complete change in terms of how the subjects interact with each other and with other people. This is a major shift. A major shift. And it's a, a horrifying when you really start getting into it. But it's a, a Henri Lefebvre, I'm just going to embarrass myself, Lefebvre's uh, work is, I think, also pretty wonderful if you work in media at all. Um, he speaks to that same type of thing. Now I've depressed myself. Any questions, any thoughts here? Oh, there's pictures of... I'll take the Deleuze shoot. Is that Deleuze shooting a gun? That's like dapper Deleuze. Yeah, he's got a... I mean, see, the he, thing is... He, I was... didn't know he could do his hair. <laughs> well, it's, it's that, that shampoo that they talk about in Antidipus. Well, um, young, young Deleuze looked like... Uh, oh, he was just... You now, young. Have you ever seen that movie, uh, Les Samouai, starring um, Alain Delon? No. Yeah, Deleuze was. That's. I mean, that's kind of his thing. That's how he was dressing all the time. Uh, but Deleuze wore a scarf even in the summer. That's one thing. Um, that's one thing that I think uh, most people, including his friends, that he was doing hey, that ever since he was in high school. Don't don't shame uh, summers. Uh summer scarves i'm not shaming it don't Wait, scarf shame me no i mean i, I think scarves are cool <laughs> Why? no i think the les pulled it off really well <laughs> what's i mean the les has a whole bunch of weird kinks if you wanted to go into that another thing was he had a phobia of milk also that whole stuff about his nails him having like dry skin so he had to grow like long nails like, he could have just used moisturizer. Like, come on, man. <laughs> what the fuck? With it? Um, the, the last line in this paragraph, sadly not about uh, moisturizer. Everyone should use moisturizer, by the way. Um, 
the last line in here is the one that's going to continue on and going to become very important in this section. This, this uh, referring to uh, the privatization of the public shift, this gives private persons a very special role in the system, a role of application and no longer implication in a code. This is a change. We all become, a, in a way, middle managers. Uh, and our job is to apply code. And if you want to see what that looks like, you're on the internet. This whole thing is basically that. Um, this change of the application of code rather than the implication for the subject is a big shift as well. Any last comments, questions, anything on this paragraph before we move on? Well, capitalism thus proceeds by means of an axiomatic and not by means of a code, one must not think that it replaces the socius, the social machine, with an aggregate technical machine. The difference in nature between the two types of machines persists, although they are both machines in the strict sense without metaphor. Capitalism's originality or resides rather in the fact that the social machine has for its parts technical machines as constant capital attached to the full body of the socius and no longer men, the latter having become adjacent to the technical machines, whence in fact that inscription no longer bears directly, or at least in theory, has no needs of bearing directly on men. But an axiomatic itself is by no means a simple technical machine, not even an automatic or cybernetic machine. Murbaki says as much concerning scientific axiomatics. They do not form a Taylor system, nor a mechanical game of isolated formulas, but rather imply intuitions that are linked to resonances and conjunctions of structures, and that are merely aided by the powerful levers of technique. This holds even truer of the social axiomatic, by way in which this axiomatic fulfills its own eminence, pushes back or enlarges its limits, adds still more axioms while preventing the system from becoming saturated, and functions well only by grinding, sputtering, and starting up again. All this implies social organs of decision, administration, reaction, inscription, a technocracy, and a bureaucracy that cannot be reduced to the operation of technical machines. In short, the conjunction of the decoded flows, their differential relations, and their multiple schizes or breaks require a whole apparatus of regulation whose principal organ is the state. The capitalist state is a regulator of decoded flows as such, insofar as they are caught up in the axiomatic of capital. In this sense, it indeed completes the becoming concrete that seemed to us to preside over the evolution of the abstract despotic Urstadt. From being at first the transcendent unity, it becomes imminent, field of social forces, enters into their service, and serves as a regulator of the decoded and axiomatized flows. The capitalist state completes the becoming concrete so fully that, in another sense, it alone represents a veritable rupture with this becoming, a break with it, in contrast to the other forms that were established on the ruins of the Erstadt. For the Erstadt was defined by overcoding and its derivatives, from the ancient city-state to the monarchic state, already found themselves in the presence of flows that were decoded, or in the process of being decoded. Those 
flows, these flows doubtless had the effect of making the state more and more imminent and subordinate to the actual field forces. But precisely because the circumstances were not right for these flows to enter into a conjunction, the state could be content to save fragments of overcoding and of codes to invent others and by marshalling all its forces, was even able to prevent the conjunction from taking place. As for the rest, its project was to resuscitate the Erstat insofar as possible. The footnote from Bourbaki is pretty fantastic. Um, Nicolas Bourbaki is the pseudonym of a group of French mathematicians who are known for their work in the theory of sets and for their advocacy of an axiomatic method which, quote, allows us, when we are concerned with complex mathematical objects, to separate their properties and regroup them around a small number of concepts, that is to say, using a word which will receive a precise definition later to classify them according to structures to which they belong. In this way, they propose to elaborate a language of mathematical formalization capable of integrating different branches of mathematics. Really interesting a way of, of thinking about set theory. Um, so, uh, a lot said there in that gigantic paragraph again. Start with just questions. We're in Baudrillard. Uh, would this apparatus not exist in purely capitalist Marvin-driven societies? Does the state emerge out of the fragments of its overcoming? Sorry, that was meant to be overcoding. Overcoding, even better. Um, I mean, one thing that's interesting, I, I think the use of the word regulator here is really important because uh, they were, one of the things that they mentioned in the previous sections was the way coding functioned in the socius, right? The way, uh, the way kinship relations were organized in debt in terms of you can talk about the debt relations that organized the kinship relations, which, you know, which held that the distinction between political economy and familial relations were basically non-existent. You know, family and economy started to go hand in hand in primitive societies for Deleuze and Guattari. Um, they mentioned that the coding operations that took place on the on the primitive socius was were in fact regulations done to prevent the breakdown of these or to prevent the decoding operation and the resulting axiomatics that would occur if coding did not take place. So there's a very interesting theory that, you know, primitive societies had systems that made sure things like the economy that we have today never came to be. Mm -hmm. And so the, the capitalistic state is, is uh, controlling this, this decoding of, of flows again. And yeah. It is almost like uh, a machine or, or some kind of particle in this this uh, field of imminence that that is around uh, around it, creating a swirl, so to speak, so it can accumulate at least uh, the, the the energy of these decoded flows. And um, it's quite interesting because I'm currently reading a book by Josef Vogel. He is uh, some kind of the Deleuze expert in in uh, Germany, he translated uh, also Difference and Repetition in the 80s or in the 90s and uh, wrote a lot about uh, or on Deleuze. And in, in his newest book that is more um, 
oriented to a popular audience uh, where he's uh, developing a theory of uh, our contemporary times and the critique of uh, financial capitalism. He's uh, describing uh, in an historical manner how, especially in the EU, um, the financial capital overtook every form of production more and more, and even the, the form of traditional or, or the functions of a traditional state. So it can, in this very concrete manner, um, open up the floodgates for its own uh, capital flows or maybe create boundaries for other uh, new uh, for other alternative forms of regulating these flows, so they they are constantly trying to to uh, expand their reach in this uh, very destructive manner. Oh, sorry, I just wanted to add. Even though if they uh, they have to, uh, so to speak, have to take a step back to become more concrete and and uh, um, create something like regulations in their favor just to create more free-flowing capital um, to their advantage. Yeah, I mean, my thing is that this chapter does open up a bit. Like this point about how codes are regulative as opposed to axiomatic. I mean, codes are regulative when it comes to the development of axiomatics. I mean, it does open up a point of con um, contention in my reading of Deleuze because I do wonder, like... Uh, you know, is capitalism still a contingency in their reading? Because if you look what they're doing, I mean, perhaps somebody can help me out here if I'm misreading here, because it seems like they're working backwards. And they say that when they open up with their thesis on what universal history means, it's a, it's a process of working backwards from capitalism. But, you know, if you know Deleuze's critiques of, uh, you know, trace the tracing operation in the image of thought chapter of difference and repetition, you could you could very much argue that what he's doing is another tracing operation by working backwards and making claims about, you know, the fact that primitive societies had regulative codes and stuff like that, which, you know, you could argue that there's not much backing up that other than that the very fact that capitalism, we have to presuppose that capitalism was in inevitable then which I don't think would follow with the rest of their argument, so. I'm, I'm hesitant to say that coding is exactly the same as regulation. I think, like, there's, it, it may be translative, it may be language-based, but to me, when we're talking about coding, there is a naturally regulating behavior that coding does to flows. It puts them in a specific place. They do certain things. They play certain roles. They become certain elements uh, decoded flow uh, doesn't have any semblance of that. It's sort of naturally regulative to have code uh, as a thing. And code and decoding as it's sort of set up prior to this is again, things are coded sort of on that axis. Yeah, but the, yeah, but the thing is there is no such thing as a, pri you know, as a prior state. It's not like we have a flow and then a code, right? There's no there's nothing one that comes first. They're both reciprocally determined, which I would say makes the universal history thesis particularly challenging. I don't know. It's just one problem that I've had. I, I, I mean, desire does come before coding. I disagree. I don't think desire comes before coding. How could coding come before desire? Well, here's the thing. There, 
so what Deleuze and Guattari say about this, I mean, this is very much like, you know, the chicken and the egg situation. It's not that you have one first and then the other. It's that, because if you say that desire comes before code, you imply that desire has some sort of natural bend to it. Hmm. In the moment, in the moment, partial objects connect, which creates the energy that allows their production to move on. Yeah, but the only way partial objects can connect is because there's or they've already been coded in a specific way. I I don't think you can have a flow with. with I mean, you you can have a decoding process, but you can't really have a flow without a code. And well, you can't. Oh shit! See, this is why this is so. Challenging. Well, so so to me, to me, uh, let's assume that literally every partial object on Earth connected at the same time and is connecting at the same time all the time. Uh, in those moments of coding, all all of them become connected, and in those, desire is produced in each one. Now, the recording of each one as a sensation, as a secondary sensation, which is this connection moment, in that. Some disconnections are satisfying, some are unsatisfying, some don't do anything, they're, they're non-space. Uh, in that, that single movement of connection-disconnection happens, you would have the immediate coding of some of these things as being satisfying, but there's still the desire element that is that isn't coded yet. It's not coded until it makes its way through to sort of that point where the subject, just prior to the subject being created, the, the disconnection and the recording on the BWO that creates what the code is for that, for that bit of desire. So it's, it's just prior to that, that the desire exists is my sort of how I see the sort of the three syntheses and how they play. So it's. So it, my question would be, which direction is desire going in? Because if you're saying that. Direction meaning. Like, you know, what's it doing? Uh, it's produced. Oh, oh, oh sorry, I, I should unmute myself when I talk. Um, isn't desire just this productive force, almost something like the, the difference in uh, Derrida or the thus, the that in, in Schelling? Because that's how, how I've read it, because it is this pr productive force that is not creating something concrete yet in the sense of that it is coded but it is still producing uh, in this way difference or is is um the the processual form of a constantly producing difference so that uh, that is desire something that has already difference within it and is producing new forms of difference yeah i i mean but then again you have to also understand that Deleuze and Guattari have three three different types of desire. It's not just mm. one desire. There's libido, Newman, and voluptuousness. And what you're talking about right now is libido. But, you know, you've, there's libido does not exist without being coded as Newman. And Newman does not exist without, you know, the final production of voluptuousness as the act of consummation occurring. So it's like this cycle. Right, but they are in order. If eminent to each other, they still are in order. So you do have libido before it is coded. Are they though? I mean, I mean, he says that I mean, he, he does say that. Yeah, but there is a challenge in talking about you know, because you know, it's like. But if if I may interrupt very quickly, I think you're really overstepping here. Uh, I'm not really 
familiar with the two concepts besides libido, but um, libido is just and the fetish. Can do you guys think of the libido and the fetish the same? Anyway, so uh, libido is just uh, it's just libido. It doesn't depend on anything else. That's how I that's how I re I read it too. That that libido is created in the connection, sort of. Uh, Again, it, all of these are imminent and, and layered to each other. Um, but see, my problem with that is then you, you're kind of implying that, that desire exists outside of organization. And if you do that, you're going to end up implying, create, creating a concept of I don't that... see it. I don't see it. I don't see it as such because we're talking about desire being created in the moment of partial objects connecting. And in that, and these things... Okay, have... okay wait, I, I just got that. So, so you're saying... So, so, so you agree with me when I say that desire does not exist independently of organization? Correct. But it, that doesn't mean okay. that it's coded either. There's a difference between being part of organization or at least sort of the, the moment of the crystal being formed before we call it a crystal or before it's part of a geode. Just because it's going to be that thing and it's inevitable or uh, sort of whatever it may be, there's still in that moment of that just that connection there would be that pure libidinal desire that is yes it's not independent of organization i would never say that it's uh we're talking about millions of billions of trillions of little desiring machines that are constantly yeah. connecting but at some point yes they become something larger and that is where we start having the determinate moments of coding where the partial uh, objects connected mommy breast uh baby hand mommy breast uh mommy warmth, my cheek, whatever, those partial objects for a baby, these create a matrix of understanding that slowly start forming the BWO, slowly start allowing me to create difference, uh, to experience it and to uh, contrast my life with everything, my experience with everything around me and define things out. This process, this matrix that becomes more and more hardened and concretized over time by me, this is just the BWO as it's being formed. That's coding, where uh, things yeah. are coded yeah, as no, sexual, things are coded as food, things are coded as this. Yeah, I but, get that. But they aren't that when they're just partial objects. Yeah, I mean, I will just clarify, I think for Rocket's test, I, so I don't think that libido exists independently. As soon as you say libido, libido exists, in, it, correct me if I'm wrong, is that what you said? Because if you say libido exists independently, you're going to re- uh, you're going to reinstitute lack into libido. So libido only exists in a certain organization. I mean, the disagreement that me and Brooks are having right now is wh where does coding take place in this process? But no, uh, Brooks, I, 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 I get your argument. I'm just going to have to, I'm going to have to reread chapter one. Yeah, no, it's and it's, and this is not just like, I'm a little bit talking out my ass somewhat because again, I don't have the tracks of knowledge in some ways, but there's a great deal that I've really enjoyed written on this um, from a few different authors who pointed me towards this. And I think this is generally, as we've been doing the logic of sense reading, there's a great deal of, uh, I find, commonality behind uh, the work there as well as DNR. So, I mean, it's a thing we should discuss, but uh, where this applies here, and let's, let's carry it forward because you and I, we can debate often. Uh, but if we carry it forward and we start talking about the flows within the state and how the state codes flows in order to regulate them um, by creating laws, by demanding this, by saying this, these are these elements, 
the the shift with capital is now that flows themselves the the flows almost govern themselves uh as as things go and the capitalist state becomes a regulator of the decoded flows uh as long as they are caught up in the axiomatic of capital which is a really fascinating uh, the, the phrase right after in this sense it indeed completes the becoming concrete it seemed to us to preside over the evolution of the abstract despotic erstat from being at first the transcendent unity comes eminent to the field of social forces enters into their service and serves as a regulator of decoded axiomatic flows capitalist state completes the becoming concrete so fully that in another sense it alone represents a veritable rupture with this becoming a break with it in contrast to the other forms that were established on the ruins of the erstat or the erstat defined by overcoding and its derivatives from ancient city-state to the monarchic already found themselves in the presence of flows that were decoded in the process of being decoded. The shift forward where we are now is very, very different. It has to, they say, the state could be content to save fragments of overcoding and of codes to invite others by marshalling its forces, was even able to prevent the conjunction from taking place. It only wishes. And then the capitalist state is their sort of next paragraph they're going to be getting to. The, the shift from uh, regulating through code through ultimately regulation of axiomatics is an interesting phrasing. By the way, Brooks, I need to get back to class. You do that. Sorry, I gotta go. Have fun. Okay, ciao. Anyways, uh, sorry, I had to leave early. If I may respond quickly, uh, after thinking, yeah, you're not really overstepping. But uh, uh, long story short, uh, that's the part of like our psychology that we can't penetrate. And that's like the beauty of creation, if you might say, right? Things that make us, us, that makes humans and civilization are those things. And uh, we can't really figure them out. Complex system. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, I guess there's a strange freedom in that, that I think. Kotari would agree with. Yes, he would. There's a, there's a freedom in the indeterminacy of uh, our concepts. Anyways, see you guys. All right. Any questions, comments before we move on to the next paragraph about the capitalist state? Yeah, so we're, we're going to be moving on. Uh, the, the Erstat, its movement, how it's shifted over time. They talked about this in the Erstat section. We went over it a few times. Uh, that the Erstat, this kind of idea that has been broken over time and downtrodden and shifted where it becomes, how it changes through all of the different forms, and ultimately we've only ever really had one Urstat, one state uh, that is constantly um, and is kind of slowly being destroyed until capital. And then, now we are with <clears throat> the capitalist state is in a different situation. It is produced by the conjunction of the decoded or deterritorialized de flows and is able to carry the becoming imminent to its highest point only to the extent that it is party to the generalized breakdown of codes and overcodings and evolves entirely within this new axiomatic that results from a hitherto unknown conjunction. Once again, this axiomatic is not the invention of capitalism since it is identical with capital itself. On the contrary, capitalism is its offspring, its result. Capitalism merely ensures the regulation of the axiomatic. It regulates 
or even organizes the failures of the axiomatic as conditions of the latter's operation. It watches over or directs progress towards a saturation of the axiomatic and the corresponding widening of its limits. Never before has a state lost so much of its power in order to enter with so much force into the service of the signs of economic power. And capitalism, despite what is said to the contrary, assumed this role very early. In fact, start from its gestation in forms still semi-feudal or monarchic, from the standpoint of the flow of free workers, the control of manual labor and of wages, from the standpoint of the flow of industrial and commercial production, granting of monopolies, favorable conditions for accumulation, and the struggle against overproduction. There has never been a liberal capitalism. Action against monopolies goes back, first of all, to a time when commercial and financial capital is still allied with the old system of production, and when nascent industrial capitalism can secure its production and its market only by obtaining the abolition of such privileges. That the struggle against monopolistic privileges does not imply any struggle against the very principle of state control, providing the state sees fit, can be seen clearly in mercantilism, inasmuch as it expresses the new commercial functions of a capital that has secured for itself direct interests in production. As a general rule, state controls and regulations tend to disappear or diminish only in situations where there is an abundant labor supply and an unusual expansion of markets. That is, when capitalism functions with a very small number of axioms within relative limits that are sufficiently wide. This situation ceased to exist long ago, and one must regard as a decisive factor in this evolution the organization of a powerful working class that required a high and stable level of employment and forced capitalism to multiply its axioms while having, at the same time, to reproduce its limits on an ever-expanding scale, the axiom of displacement from the center to the periphery. Capitalism was able to digest the Russian Revolution only by continually adding new axioms to the old ones, an axiom for the working class, for the unions, and so on. But it was always prepared to add more axioms. It adds axioms for many other things besides, things that are much smaller, tiny even, absurdly insignificant. It has a peculiar passion for such things that leaves the essential unchanged. The state is thus induced to play an increasingly important role in the regulation of the axiomatized flows, and with regard to production and its planning, the economy and its monetarization and surplus value and its absorption by the state apparatus itself. The shift of how the state operates and moves, and again, um, a big deal through universal history is we aren't talking about oh, up until this date we had the primitive, and then suddenly we had the despotic, and then at this date we switched. It's that where we are today, what, we, what we're calling capital, the way that things work, is a massive machine. Think of it that way. It's this huge, incredibly complex, where pieces have fallen by the wayside from previous. They're on the ground from the despotic that are just waiting to be picked back up. But also, there are pieces that fell off and came back, and others that got added on. So it's this monstrosity of a Frankensteinian machine that we've gotten to where we're at. So it's not that the state is just this one singular thing. It's how it operates. It's how the Urstadt works. Again, I 
I would implore you, if you're having trouble with this, please go back and read the section. It's pretty short, um, our reading on that uh, up next week if I get my chance to edit. Now that we're in capital, the switch with capital and the state is to justify capital, I suppose, to keep the axiomatics flowing and working and keep them, uh, uh, how to say, keep them believable, you might say. Uh, we have regulations, for example, uh, today I watched uh, a whistleblower for Facebook um, uh, in front of Congress in America talking about all the awful shit Facebook does. And uh, they're talking about, oh, should we split it up? Should we do these things? They're, none of these things are to stop capital or to regulate capital. The whole point here is that we have axiomatics that need to consistently be proven. They need to be put back in. They need to be protected. And there are actual axiomatic, axiomatized flows that need to be regulated in order to keep things going for all of us. It's, it's not that we're regulating in order to control capital. It's that we're regulating in order to maintain the axioms where they're at, in order to reinforce them, in order to build them out. It's the last line here. The state is induced to play an increasingly important role in the regulation of the axiomatized flows with regard to production and its planning, the economy, monetization. This, this is the way it works. Um, axioms are everywhere, and the state is there to ensure that they stay in place. Um, and ensure that they work. Uh, capitalism doesn't need many. Uh, the, they go back in time and they start talking about how there's always been regulation within capital, this fantasy, anyone who says they're a classic liberal or anything. Um, Anarcho-capitalists, whatever. Um, whatever they may be. The, there have always been controls on things that have maintained these axioms. It's necessary. It's, ne it's absolutely necessary that these things be seen as true, at least at some kind of large scale, to the point that they have to, that the state pulls capital out, the, the flows out when it needs to in forms of taxation or spending on wars or spending on these things that are part of that anti-production cycle that are now inherent to it. This is the state's role. Um, it has been ever since capitalism was a wee infant inside of the world. A really great paragraph. Uh, any parts anyone wants to break down, anyone wants to add to things, please? Would you just check that tweet I just sent? It's a very quick video. It's about Boris Johnson talking about... No, just uh, see it quickly. I think it's a good add-on. Uh, Boris Johnson, uh, when asked about spending plans and plans to cut taxes, Boris Johnson responds, as the great Tunisian scholar and sage Ibn Khaldun pointed out as early as the 14th century, there are plenty of taxes that you can cut which will actually increase your revenues. That's 14th century. That's, that's, that's early. Some early capitalism right there. And it's spot on. Spot on talking about this. That this is not um, any new thing. This is as far back as early mercantilism, which I think is around that time. If you want to expand on it, feel free. Uh, but I, I think I, I... No, only thing I got to say is about the previous paragraph where Deleuze uh, was talking about... Uh, sorry for the noise. Deleuze uh, was talking about uh, technocracy and socialism. Uh, so, and I see there's a schizophrenia right in the... 
core of society where we just try to make uh, do good by everybody but uh, technocracy just imposes itself and everyone keeps believing that we can make it work and uh, like we can make things work for everybody and that's just kind of paranoia right like you're just believing things that haunt you all the time and when it doesn't go that way you just want to keep changing things and like uh, firing people and uh, you just keep criticizing criticizing and trying to deter deter your life and everything so that's you can describe that as schizophrenia right um so i i think i would say i i don't think what you're saying is necessarily off i think the the I would add some tweaks. So like the the way that people demand knowledge or these axioms is very much towards the paranoiac because the the number one thing a paranoiac wants, it's not so much a paranoiac in the sense of like believing weird dumb shit, but it's it's the demand personally towards specificity, concretization and knowing. It's the demand towards knowing. The the paranoiac axis on the paranoiac schizophrenic axis is that of specific knowing defined tight little simple things uh everything can be totally knowable uh, like a logical positivism almost gone amok empirical scientivism whatever it may be you know everything schizophrenic is much more of specifically in in the way we're talking about it much more of the uh allow free connections wherever they are we don't really know and there is no structure uh it's kind of the other pole when we're talking about axioms, axioms are knowing how society functions. And there's a, uh, uh, I mean, America suffers from this. Uh, the West suffers from this drastically. I have less experience in other places, so I can mostly only talk towards my own experience on that. But, you know, Boris Johnson is a phenomenal example. So is Trump. So is everyone who supported the right, but also Biden and, you know, the pseudo left of wherever we are in the West. The The things that are underlying it is, They'll say things that are, I don't know, on their face, batshit nuts. The police are there to protect you. Uh, something, the military are heroes, <laughs> things like that. That um, these are completely, these are the axiomatics. These are the rules of society that we sort of are agreeing to. And this is, it's, it's these tiny little bits. Uh, it's why capitalism, and it's the end of the paragraph here, was able to digest the Russian Revolution did this by adding new axioms to the old they they were still dealing with capitalism they weren't they weren't communist they they were still going through this because capitalism was still part of that and suddenly they had to add an axiom for the working class and then they added it for unions and then they added it for this and this and this capitalism doesn't mind adding like billions of axioms in fact there's a there's a perverse joy it gets and capitalists get and people get out of having uh, more and more and more, the hyper-definition of things, again, towards the paranoiac side of things. So the state now, and it ends here, the state is thus induced to play an increasingly important role in the regulation of the axiomatized flows with regards to all of these things, ultimately absorption, but monetarization and all of that. And the axiomatized flows, these things that are no longer coded, they're whatever they need to be based on axioms that we all kind of sort of agree on or more or less exist prior to us. Uh, this is the shift of where our desires go within capital. 
this is this is a big sea change in terms of um you know it, it, my desires are what they are in the primitive they're determined by uh survival and i need to have my daughter or my mom or we need to have food and i, I have my family we have our alliances because we need more people to deal with this is there's complexity there that's my matrix all my desires butt up against those things they're pretty imminent with as we move through they become more and more disconnected um at some point i'm still dealing with the despot who's my father and also alliant like all of that but there's still that connection me to them me to the person me to god me to the pharaoh me to the godhead now it's i am an individual uh, but I don't matter. I don't. Uh, there's always a real place for me. They will always find a place for me. But my desires and the things I want no longer are going to the thing. Instead, they are immediately decoded and recoded as capital. And that's it. So desires outside of that now get moved around based on axioms, not any impetus or push behind them. And this is, a again, a, a Fucking huge change in terms of why flows happen the direction as they go. Right, there is no no more intensities in this sense because everything becomes more and more administrated by this uh, way the the capitalistic state functions, and I guess uh, the 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 current peak of this is is financial capitalism and and uh, the way it operates. Even even harsher than than, for example, uh, industrial capital capitalism. Yeah, I would agree completely. Great way of putting it. No, there's not to mention Graeber. I've been reading Graeber lately, so now he's on the brain. Um, a Utopia of Rules, uh, the Joys of Bureaucracy is another book that's now two paragraphs in a row. Graeber has stuff that is completely in line with it. the The beauty of Utopia of Rules is about the axiomatics that we create a bureaucracy created by capital. He doesn't state it as such, again, as a, some critiques of all of this, but it, it's, a, it's a phenomenal book on the way that capital's continually reinventing rules that who the fuck put them in place? It just seems to work. Yes, no one knows. <laughs> no one knows any of it. Trial and error, maybe trial and error. I, I wouldn't even say it's trial and error. I, uh, a great example would be modern monetary theory. If you want to really piss someone up, piss someone off uh, in economic circles, mention modern monetary theory. Now, the reasons they give are things that we assume to be true, sure, but there's literally no reason to believe that it's bad. Like, we, 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 we can't know because we just kind of make the shit up and we have our axioms of how all of this is meant to function. Um, a great example, someone uh, who on Twitter said this as an example of a great example of an axiom is when we have the discussion that there are homeless people or people starving, uh, as a society, we choose to have that happen. We don't think of it as such because the axiomatics that flow around us say you have to be able to afford a house. If you don't afford a house, you're homeless. You need food. Here's where you buy food. Here's how it works. You need these things. Um, the, the problem is that there's no reason why people should starve. And when you chase those things down, like, um, hey, but there are kids that are starving. Is it okay for kids to starve? Like, no, but that's just the way it has to be. Is, is like the way that people, 
this is axiomatic nailing like to to a t that is big schizophrenia like that's schizophrenia at its most like obvious well in in the world of of ao uh they would say that that's more the paranoiac um that it's still disconnected from reality but for sure demanding knowledge and sticking to that knowledge uh in lieu of literally anything else or to any other anything else is is paranoiac par excellence for sure so it's it's phrasing is tough because when we talk about like schizophrenia as an actual clinical condition um that's not what they're talking about here like they're utilizing schizophrenia uh in the early parts of this book to talk through the way that uh people create subjectivity and the process so they utilize the paranoiac and the schizophrenic as examples they're not demanding that we be schizophrenic they're not saying schizophrenia is good and they're not really talking about schizophrenia as we know today uh at the time that this book was written i believe it was very standard for autism to be considered a schizophrenic category and, uh I mean, I don't think any of us put that in there now, nor do actual therapists, therapists, people who work in the space. So there's language has shifted a bit over time. But um, yes, I would say it's broken and disconnected from reality, if that's what you're saying, Rocket Test, completely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, one last comment is that you said uh, uh, in our society, we feel like we don't matter. It's true, we get humbled by money and capital. But... Uh, in the like essence of our society, in the Western world especially, uh, like uh, Marx said, uh, individualization is the right to not care about others. It's not only that I do not, no one cares about me. It's that you don't care about others, and it gave you the right to not care about others. And what else? Uh, and in the essence also of the. Western society is the concept of humanism and that uh, a human can attain God status and become maybe half God or, you know, transcendentalism in the, uh, in the usual sense. So there's that uh, contradiction also, I like which that. is paranoid by excellence. I like that uh, a lot. I think I would say um, in our society, um, it's less that we don't have to care about others, because I think that puts a an onus on the subject that I don't know if it, I think this happens pre-subject. Um, I think people don't have to care about others. Um, again, the way that coding works uh, within roles and within society, and let's say uh, prehistory, pre the 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 first socius, the Earth. I do, my desires tend to match those directly around me, especially family and those in my tribe, my alliances, because they have to. Uh, I am doing a role, I deal with people direct, I am one cog in a machine, I am part of that. Over time, the subjectivization switches. Under the despot, I'm ordered to do X, Y, or Z, but at least God's picking me to do a thing. So I'm less concerned at this point with others, but it's not out of realm. The way subjectivity is created under capital is completely broken apart. Uh, my subjectivity, my role in society, my desire, who I am, my identity comes kind of after the fact. It's determined by capital. Capital is not pre-subject. There's, there's no part of that. So my role in society, my relations to other people have been completely removed from actually 
what I'm doing or who I'm around. And in fact, we'll come to where they're kind of heading with this is uh, like, to come back to Oedipus, the shift that happens is that family now becomes my entire level of social determination, not the people I'm around, not my alliance, not even my filial, but literally my nuclear family is reliant, relied upon by the state, by capital, by the socius to uh, right-size me as a subject, right-size my son or my daughter or child. Like who I am in relation to everything is that tiny little family, that little bit. And that shift also is a, a big one problem. Uh, Rimbaudriart says, uh, perhaps under industrial capitalism, some trace of the worker identity persists. One may maintain some pride identity in being a certain worker instead of being transformed into your capital or labor capacity as in late or financial capitalism. Um, I would agree with that. Like it's the, my, my immediate reaction is yes. Um, I know my, again, I go with my grandfather and I know I'm older than a lot of you. So maybe great grandfather for some people who were born in like the early 1900s or just prior. Um, uh, the way that they talked about work, the way they talked about what they did is different drastically. I'm 40. I'm not super old. I'm old enough. Um, my grandfather would be in his late 90s now. Um, it's a... No, he'd be... Geez, he'd be old. Um, but the, the, the time was different under industrial capital. Um, and industrial capital was very different. Um, and I think they talk, they sort of trace through how those things happen and they switch. Um, and it, yeah, industrial capital, again, these things don't come sort of all at once. They don't come and it's like, oh, now we're in capitalism. Cool. It's, these are the pieces of the machine that we're in and we're trying to divine where those pieces come from, how they go, how they work, where they connect, how we connect, how we are produced within, um, it's a, it's a lot at once. Let's see. I think we can do one more paragraph here because it's a little bit more on the regulative nature of the state uh, before we move into class. Uh, because one of the things they're really trying to get at is one of the reasons that there is no class solidarity. Um, uh, and there can't be. Your capital, it's an issue. Uh, so let's uh, go ahead and dive into the next paragraph and continue moving forward. The regulative functions of the state do not imply any sort of arbitration between social classes. That the state is entirely in the service of the so-called ruling class is an obvious practical fact, but a fact that does not reveal its theoretical foundation. The latter is simple to explain. From the viewpoint of the capitalist axiomatic, there is only one class, a class with a universalist vocation, the bourgeoisie. Plekhanov notes that the French school of the 19th century, under the influence of St. Simon, should be credited with the discovery of class struggle and its role in history, precisely the same men who praised the struggle of the bourgeois class against the nobility of, and feudalism, and who came to a halt before the proletariat and deny that there can be any difference in class between the industrialist and, or banker and the worker, but only a fusion into one and the same flow as with profits and wages. This proposition contains something other than an ideological blindness or denial. 
Classes are the negative of casts and statuses. Classes are orders, casts, and statuses that have been decoded. To reread history through the class struggle is to read it in terms of the bourgeoisie as the decoding and decoded class. It is the only class as such, inasmuch as it leads the struggle against codes and merges with the generalized decoding of flows. In this capacity, it is sufficient to fill the capitalist field of eminence. And in point of fact, something new occurs with the rise of the bourgeoisie, the disappearance of enjoyment as an end, the new conception of the conjunction according to which the sole end is abstract wealth and its realization informs other than consumption. The generalized slavery of the despotic state at least implied the existence of masters, and an apparatus of anti-production distinct from the sphere of production. But the bourgeois field of eminence, as delimited by the conjunction of the decoded flows, the negation of any transcendence or exterior limit, and the effusion of anti-production inside production itself, institutes an unrivaled slavery, an unprecedented subjugation. There are no longer even any masters, but only slaves commanding other slaves. There is no longer any need to burden the animal from the outside. It shoulders its own burden. Not that man is ever the slave of technical machines. He is rather a slave of the social machine. The bourgeois sets the example. He absorbs surplus value for ends that, taken as a whole, have nothing to do with his own enjoyment. More utterly enslaved than the lowest of slaves, he is the first servant of the ravenous machine, the beast of the reproduction of capital, internalization of the infinite debt. I am too, I too am a slave. These are the new words spoken by the master. Only as personified capital is the capitalist respectable. As such, he shares with the miser the passion for wealth as wealth. But that which in the miser is a mere idiosyncrasy is the capitalist, the effect of the social mechanism of which he is but one of the wheels. There's a controversial take here that bourgeoisie is the only class. <laughs> there's, a lot, there's a lot that happens here and a lot to sort of break down that I'm not, again, going to pretend that I'm an expert in, but I do really enjoy um, this idea of the flatness almost of capital, that the slavery to the system exists and that the bourgeois as being those that are responsible for finding ways to be stratified, to decode, to destroy, to deterritorialize. That's their job. They're the only class as the struggle against codes emerges with the generalized decoding of flows. They are sufficient to fulfill the capitalist field of eminence. A lot of this, again, intuitively feels pretty wonderfully spot on to me. I really like it. Um, and not in a, oh, I pity the rich man kind of way, but in a, uh, they are wheels. That's not far off from my experience of some of them. Please, uh, any thoughts, comments, uh, questions on this paragraph? Uh, this will be it. So let's finish the discussion and move out. This will be uh, how we finish out is this paragraph. And there's a lot of different ways to uh, talk through sort of all of this. A class is a fantastically interesting and difficult thing. Uh, I'll read a little bit here. Because um, as we're talking through universal history and we're talking through sort of these elements, the idea of a historical class struggle for them um, 
the idea of talking through subjugated groups or subject groups should instead be talked through the organization of a revolutionary class. Um, we're not to chapter four yet, kind of jumping a little bit ahead, but the, the idea that there is a proletariat, these, these things exist just as much as Oedipus exists. Um, but we need to sort of take a step back and, and discuss how class actually functions and how people actually organize themselves. As they say, uh, classes are orders, castes, and statuses that have been decoded. They're the negative of castes. To reread history through the class struggle is to read in terms of the bourgeoisie as the decoding and decoded class. It is the only class as such. The rest uh, exist. They, take, they have their parts, but they have a different role within society or part of the machine. Um, big one. Proletariat, uh, Snow asks, so the proletariat have not been decoded, play no part in decoding? They, they have been decoded. They don't play a part in the decoding or um, as a decoded class, though. Uh, not in the same way. Um, and they, they'll get into the way that that is. I don't want to jump too far ahead. Oh, God, should I just read the next paragraph? Got like 10 minutes. Yeah, I'm, I'm just going to do that. We're just going to move to the next paragraph because it kind of explains what you're asking and save some time. It will be said that there is nonetheless a class that rules and a class that is ruled, both defined by surplus value, the distinction between the flow of financing and the flow of income and wages. But this is only partially true, since capitalism is born of the conjunction of the two in the differential relations and integrates them both in the continually expanded reproduction of its limits. So that the bourgeois is justified in saying, not in terms of ideology, but in the very organization of his axiomatic. There is only one machine, that of the great mutant decoded flow, cut off from goods, and one class of servants, the decoding bourgeoisie, the class that decodes the castes and the statuses, and that draws from the machine an undivided flow of income, convertible into consumer and production goods, a flow on which profits and wages are based. In short, the theoretical opposition is not between two classes, for it is the very notion of class, insofar as it designates the negative of codes, that implies there is only one class. The theoretical opposition lies elsewhere. It is between, on the one hand, the decoded flows that enter into a class axiomatic on the full body of capital, and on the other hand, the decoded flows that free themselves from this axiomatic just as they free themselves from the despotic signifier that break through this wall, this wall of a wall, and begin flowing on the full body without organs. The opposition is between the class and those who are outside the class, between the servants of the machine and those who sabotage it or its cogs and wheels, between the social machine's regime and that of the desiring machines between the relative interior limits and the absolute exterior limit, if you will, between the capitalists and the schizos in their basic intimacy at the level of decoding, in their basic antagonism at the level of the axiomatic. Whence the resemblance in the 19th century socialist portrait of the proletariat between the latter and a perfect schizo. Uh, the next line in the next begins the next paragraph, and I'm not going to read it. God, I feel like I want to just charge ahead so far. These things start leaning into each other so hard here. The next line, I'm just going to say, 
That is why the problem of a proletarian class belongs, first of all, to praxis. Like, that's where they're leading. That we've had this, the, the proletarian is the, the worker class and the bourgeoisie is the wealthy. Capital shifts a great deal of this. This is not where things are at anymore. To them, it's, we need to talk about classes, the, the notion of class that designates the negative of codes that implies there is only one class. The theoretical opposition is elsewhere. It is between those, the decoded flows, that enter into a class axiomatic on the full-body capital, those people who accept this. And on the other hand, those who don't, those who stand fully outside of it, placing yourself in adjacent, oh, I am a proletariat, or I'm this, or I'm this, or I'm this, in these different classes within the capitalist system, you're still part of that bourgeoisie class that does the decoding. Proletariats are something else if we want to separate them. They need to be something with praxis that actually does damage to the machine, that breaks it, that tears it apart. The actual revolutionary spirit, that of the schizo, not of the one who's pulling, fully taking part in the system, however they may be taking part. There are servants and there are masters and they're rich and wealthy. There are those who die of starvation, but they're all decoding. They're all part of that bourgeoisie class. Um, this is big about capitalist subjectivity, Tiernan, yes. This is about where you sit and where your subjectivity is produced inside of that. And again, are you one of those who sits and enjoys decoding and takes part in the system, which is the bourgeoisie, and they've been there for, for forever? Or are you one who's going to dismantle the machine? And that doesn't mean just being a worker or being a performative communist or even being a communist necessarily. We don't even know what that means. It's a so it's not even anarchist fully. It's it's closer to anarchism than anything, but it's a different type of permanent revolution, a different type of uh, experiencing. It plays different for sure. It plays very very different. So that's a hope that answered snow. I, I had to read a whole paragraph, but it is. It's permanent interruption, permanent revolution, permanent not being anything. The moment you say, oh, I am a proletariat, you're fucked. The moment I am a bourgeoisie, you're fucked. Like, these are, this is the opposite. You're placing yourself inside of the system by just being that. Or I'm not that by pointing at it. There, no one is anything. That's the whole point. None of us are anything. The, the lines spoken by the master that they quote in here, I too am a slave. It's new words spoken by the master. It's a great line. I think I'm going to end there. We're nearing two o'clock. Um, any comments, questions, things here? Last thing I think I'll read is from uh, just a little bit that's from uh, Holland's take on Antiochus. The subject of revolution and universal history, according to Deleuze and Guattari, is neither a class nor humanity as a whole but a genetic unconscious as biological life force. Or schizoanalysis, species being, refers to the reproduction of our molecular unconscious, to the development of life force, not to any specific qualities inherent in humankind. With that, I think I'm going to go ahead and uh, close out the recording today. Thank all of you for joining us. Um, uh, it's been wonderful. It's always great to have all of you, and we will be reading uh, from here on as we... Uh, make our way next week, uh, heading further into class and 
Some really controversial shit's coming next week. It'll be fun.